Hello and shalom, everybody. My name is Julia Jassy, and you are listening to Nice Jewish Girls, brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. On today's episode, the woman that we have the honor of sitting down with is a lawyer who was argued in front of the Supreme Court and changed legal precedent. Yes, I am talking about none other than the queen herself, Elisa Lewin. Elisa Lewin is truly a part of making Jewish history. She's dedicated her life to advocating for the community by using the law. And she's done this in every hall of power. Aliza has been involved in some of the most transformative cases affecting the state of modern US Jewry. And so during this conversation, I'll be asking her about all of this. How can the law be a tool to advocate for the Jewish community? What strength is there in women taking the helm of creating this legal change? How has the change she's made in the community affected her own relationship with Judaism? I am so excited for you guys to meet her. Let's do this thing. Aliza D. Lewin is the president of the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under the Law, or LDB for short, a nonprofit organization established to advance the civil and human rights of the Jewish people and promote justice for all. The Brandeis Center conducts research, education, and legal advocacy to combat the resurgence of anti-Semitism on college and university campuses. In 2014, Lewin argued the Zivotofsky v. Kerry case before the U.S. Supreme Court, a case involving the constitutionality of a law granting any American citizen born in Jerusalem the right to list Israel as the place of birth on his or her passport. It's colloquially known as the Jerusalem passport case. Ms. Lewin brought this pro bono case to a successful resolution in October of 2020, when Secretary of State Pompeo revised the U.S. passport regulations and Ambassador David Freeman presented her client with the very first U.S. passport to list Israel as the place of birth for a U.S. citizen born in Jerusalem. Ms. Lewin also successfully represented the Boyum family in its landmark tort litigation, which established the right of American victims of terror to obtain damages under American law against organizations that knowingly provide financial support to international terrorist groups. Elise Lewin is an incredible woman and a personal mentor of mine, so I'm very excited to have her with us today here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today, Elisa. Hi, Julia. It's a pleasure to be here. Amazing. So as always, I want to start right from the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from, what your background is as a Jewish woman, what your experiences have been along that vein? I grew up in Washington, D.C., and Judaism has always been a part of my life. I come from an Orthodox Jewish family. I went to a Jewish day school through ninth grade. For the last three years of high school, though, I went to a non-Jewish private girls' school with no religious affiliation. And that actually provided me with the opportunity to really think about my Judaism. Mm -hmm. Because for the first time in my life, when I was in high school in 10th through 12th grade, I found that I would be asked questions by my peers. They'd want to know why I had certain customs or practices. They wanted to know what the reason was for um, these certain different observances, religious observances. And I found that suddenly I actually had to dig into all the information I'd learned over all those years in the Jewish day schools to answer the questions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'd have the answers at my fingertips, and other times they'd ask me questions and I actually didn't know the answers. And I was fortunate enough that I was still living at home. 
and my father's very knowledgeable and has an amazing library. And I would go home and I'd ask him mm-hmm. and he'd pull some book off the shelf and sit down and learn it together with me. And I found that I actually internalized my feelings about the religion in, in a way that many of my friends who were still at Jewish day schools and high schools didn't have to do. Um, I really had to think about, well, do I really believe this? Or you know, why am I doing this? And I found that by the time I finished high school, I had really internalized my faith and my um, convictions much more than some of my peers. Mm-hmm. And I saw that a lot when I went to when I went to college. This story of mentorship and of of being given the tools to figure things out for yourself and using those tools to come to grips with things that take people a lifetime to come to grips with. Um, it seems like that's played a really strong role in your life, um, especially talking about your father's library. And um, for anyone listening who is unfamiliar, um, Elisa Lewin and her father are both really successful and incredible lawyers. Um, has this legacy of continued knowledge been an impactful role in you deciding to pursue a career in law? Sure, absolutely. I mean, my father has um, had an enormous influence in my life. My father, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, is Nathan Lewin. He's a bit of a legal a legend, particularly in the <laughs> Jewish community. Uh, while he is a uh, appellate litigator, constitutional law expert, mm-hmm. uh, white-collar criminal defense attorney, he has always, throughout his career, devoted a significant amount of his time and energy to legal work on behalf of the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. So while he's argued 28 cases before the Supreme Court, wow. several of those have involved issues of religious liberty. He argued the case involving the right to wear a yarmulke in the military. He mm-hmm. argued the case before the Supreme Court of the right of Chabad Lubavitch to put up the large Hanukkah menorahs in the public square. And those are just a few. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in that environment. But it actually goes back even further than my father. My father's father uh, was also very much an advocate on behalf of the Jewish community. My father was born in Poland, in Ludz or Wuj, uh before mm-hmm. the war. And he was, uh, he and his family escaped, fled from Europe. My father was three years old. Wow. And they were refugees who managed to make their way to the States. Uh, my grandmother was actually the one who was instrumental in saving the family. Uh, she was raised in Amsterdam. She was Dutch. And when uh, the Germans invaded Poland, she immediately recognized the need to leave. And within days, they smuggled across the border into Lithuania. And um, my grandmother was the one who really opened up an avenue for uh, many Jews who ended up being saved because she took it upon herself. She knew that they were not going to still be safe in Lithuania. Uh, so she reached out to the Dutch ambassador to Lithuania to ask whether um, he would give her, and she was actually traveling at that point with her mother and her brother, as well as her husband and my father, son, um, and asked if they could get visas to the Dutch East Indies, right, Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Dutch ambassador said, no, they were not giving any visas to the Dutch East Indies. But she didn't give up, and she wrote back to him again and asked again whether there was anything he could do. And he said, well, you don't need a visa to go to the Dutch West Indies, to Curaçao and Suriname. Mm. Um, But what you need is the permission of the governor of Curaçao. So she wrote to him again and said, well, would you just write the first part of that in my passport? 
that I don't need a visa to go to Curacao. Stop there. Because she really didn't intend to go to Curacao, but she knew she just needed something to be able to leave Europe. Mm-hmm. And so he agreed, and she sent her Polish passport to him. And we have a copy of how he wrote this notation wow. in French, that she does not need a visa to go to Curacao or Suriname. That was in July 1940. Wow. With that notation, her Polish passport was no longer any good once the Germans had invaded Poland. So the Lithuanians gave them travel documents called a Leitemas. And with the Polish passport, with the notation from the ambassador, she went to the local Dutch consul, Jans Wartendijk, and asked him if he would copy this notation from her Polish passport onto the travel documents, the Leitemas that the Lithuanians had given to her and my grandfather and my father. And he agreed. And so she then took that notation and went to the Japanese consul, Shiuni Sugihara, and asked him for a transit visa through Japan for her family as if they were going to go on to Curacao. Sugihara, many people have heard of Sugihara. He disobeyed his government's orders and issued these these visas, these transit visas for thousands of Jews. But my grandmother's was the first. Wow. My grandmother started and created the idea of this Curacao visa. It wasn't a visa. It was a non-visa. If you think about it, you don't write in a passport you don't need a visa. You just don't have a visa. But here you needed this non-visa to make it appear to the Japanese as if all these refugees weren't just coming with a final destination of Japan. So that was my grandmother's persistence, my grandmother's determination, my grandmother's uh, realization that they had to keep moving. And so when you look at Sugihara's list, you see that my grandmother, her mother, her brother, um, you know, their visas are 16, 17, and 18 on this list, the very first visas. And when you look at Sugihara's wife's memoirs, she talks about how the day after the date on my grandparents' visa, um, they woke up, Sugihara woke up and looked out in the courtyard of the consulate, and there was a mob scene of Jews. They were all there in the courtyard trying to get these visas. And I think what happened is my grandmother's brother was learning in the yeshiva there at the time. And I think he told his, his mm-hmm. chavruta, right, the person mm-hmm. he was learning with, that he got this yeah. visa and showed it to him and word spread like wildfire through the yeshiva. Yeah. And they all showed up the next morning at the consulate to try and get the Sugihara visas out of Japan. Wow. And um, the list is, there are over 2,000 names on that list. And many of them, like for my grandparents, were for families. So that was my grandmother. My grandfather, when he came to the States, was very active, very involved in the UN, working to try and raise awareness, writing articles to get the American Jewish community to understand what was going on in Europe um, and to help save the Jews of Europe. But it actually goes back further than my grandparents because my great-grandfather, my father's father's father, Rabbi Aaron Lewin, actually my grandfather was Rabbi Isaac Lewin, Rabbi Aaron Lewin, my great-grandfather, was not only the chief rabbi in a city in southern Poland called Zeshev, um, but he was also an elected member of the Polish SEM. So he's kind of like a Joe Lieberman of his day. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was uh, a member of a Goodith Israel, so he had a long beard and black hat and black abekish, a very religious man, um, but a politician, spoke a beautiful Polish, was quite an orator, uh, and uh, people say he spoke out against Hitler. And he may have been on Hitler's 10 most wanted list. He unfortunately perished in the Holocaust with most of my grandparents' families. And, uh, and so 
I I grew up, my great-grandfather also wrote a commentary on the Bible, very insightful commentary on the Bible. And so I grew up on the one side with parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who s- survived, who some and some didn't, you know, the Holocaust. So that was very much a real part of my upbringing on that side of my family. On my mother's side of the family, she's also was very involved in the Soviet jury efforts. She was instrumental in getting the re- gaining the release of a family, Carmela and Zev Rice, who mm-hmm. were some of the longest-term refuseniks. They'd been in refusal for 18 years when my mother got involved in their case and were able to, through her efforts, to actually get them, um, gain them their freedom and, uh, and enable them to move to Israel. Uh, but her mother, so my maternal grandmother, was born in the old city of Jerusalem um, when it was under Ottoman rule, and she was a seventh-generation Jerusalemite. So my ancestors on my mother's side came to Israel in the 1800s. So I have always felt that in me, both of these pieces of Jewish history meet. Yeah. I, I have on the one side the Holocaust, and on the other side my roots in the Jewish homeland and in Israel. And I used to look at pictures of, um, that were taken in the 1930s in the Jewish ghettos in Poland. Uh, my my father, I said, was born in Ludge. So there was a photographer, Roman Vishniak, who took pictures with a hidden camera of Jews in the Ludge ghetto in 1939. And I would look at those pictures and think, how close it came to that being my life. And by just some twist of fate, I wasn't born there. I was born in the United States. I grew up with such um, opportunity and such blessing. And why? Why? I have always, always felt not only extremely grateful for that fact, but I've also felt this deep sense of obligation that that means I'm supposed to give back somehow. I'm supposed to be able to use the blessings that I have been given and the experiences that I've been given to try and help the Jewish community. So absolutely, that's it. That's that's how I uh, that's how I came right to what I do. That's what motivates me to do what I do. Um, and so, yeah, I always knew, I talk about my father, I always knew I wanted to be able to practice law with him someday. So I wanted to understand his cases and understand what he does, but also be able to mm-hmm. to do some of the kind of work that he does. And done that you have. I mean, one thing that I find so compelling about the story you've just told us, I mean, there is there was a lot that I find very compelling about that story. It's an incredible family history. And the duality of it is something that, I can relate to a lot coming from a similarly mixed family background. I've experienced the Holocaust, but also have experienced a deep connection to Israel for longer than just since 1948, but for for centuries. Um, and the case that you really have been a massive part of was the Jerusalem passport case. And one thing I found so interesting was that the story you told us about your grandmother also had to do with passports and visas and also had to do with a woman really taking hold and protecting so many in her community 
through something as simple or as complex, I guess, as a passport. Um, it's just a really interesting, I guess, full circle moment to consider. Um, but can you tell us about this case? How did you find it? What was the process of it? Um, and what was the impact of this case? Sure. So many people don't realize that the policy of the United States until the last administration was that Jerusalem, and I'm talking about all of Jerusalem, East and West, um, the United States did not recognize any part of Jerusalem as actually being in Israel. Mm-hmm. At first, when the United States recognized Israel in 1948, uh, this was out of respect for the initial partition plan, the UN partition plan that had envisioned Jerusalem as a corpus separatum, as this separate international city. After 1967, the rationale was, well, the future status of Jerusalem needs to be determined in peace negotiations. And so until that happens, the United States is not recognizing Israel's sovereignty, formally recognizing Israel's sovereignty over any part of Jerusalem. And you would see this uh, policy in particular in the passport mm-hmm. policy and how the United States handled passports for American citizens born in Jerusalem. The general rule for an American citizen born anywhere outside of Israel is that the country of birth is what's listed on their passport. There's no place for a city. It's only the country. So say you have two American citizens and they're living in Paris and they have a child That child's American passport says France as the place of birth. There's no city listed. If you have two American citizens and they're living in Tel Aviv and they have a child, that child's passport lists Israel as the place of birth. But when it comes to Jerusalem, because the U.S. did not recognize any part of Jerusalem as being in Israel, they wouldn't list Israel because Jerusalem's a city without a country. So instead of listing the country, They would put Jerusalem on the passport instead. Mm -hmm. The problem with the policy is that it went beyond this. The passport policy would bend over backwards to accommodate those individuals who sought or wanted to believe that one day the Jewish state of Israel would not exist. What do I mean by that? Well, let's say you're an American citizen born in Haifa. And you're opposed to the existence of the modern state of Israel. If you request it, the State Department will take Israel off your passport, because that's what the rule would require, is that it would say Israel. And you could ask that it not say Israel, but that they list the city instead, that they put Haifa, for instance, instead. You could do this for anywhere. This policy, I believe, began because of opposition to Israel's existence. When our case was first brought in 2002, there had been explicit language in the Foreign Affairs Manual that said that some people are opposed to putting Israel on their passport and therefore will allow them to remove it. This policy has now been expanded to everywhere in the world. So if you live in Ireland and you don't like having Ireland on your passport or any country, you can request that it be removed and put your city on instead. But initially, this was explicitly made clear in the Foreign Affairs Manual. But it goes beyond that, right? If you're living in, um, you're allowed to put West Bank as a place of birth, you're allowed to put Gaza Strip as a place of birth, and 
if you're born anywhere in Israel, it can be even in Tel Aviv, Haifa, areas that have been under Israel's control since 1948. If you're born before 1948, the State Department will list Palestine as your place of birth if you request it. Mm -hmm. That is even though the rule, the general rule, is that you must list the current sovereign over that area as the place of birth. So, for example, I know someone who was born in Kiev when it was part of the USSR. Mm -hmm. His passport lists Ukraine as his place of birth. He doesn't feel Ukrainian. He wasn't Ukrainian. But mm -hmm. you have to list the current sovereign. So, for him, he has to list Ukraine. But for somebody born in Tel Aviv before 1948, if they want, State Department will go against the rule and list Palestine as the place of birth. Mm -hmm. So in 2002, Congress passed a law to try and correct this inequity, and the law passed overwhelmingly, and what it said is that while the default would still be to list Jerusalem as the place of birth for an American citizen born in Jerusalem, if a citizen born in Jerusalem requested it, the State Department shall list Israel as the place of birth on the U.S. passport. Mm -hmm. I should note that in 1994, Congress had passed a law it said that citizens, American citizens born in Taiwan, they oh, wow. list Taiwan as their place of birth on the U.S. passport. Wow. And that was, even though we don't recognize Taiwan as sovereign, mm -hmm. and in fact, the Chinese were livid when the U.S. passed that law. In fact, they stopped issuing visas to individuals whose passports had Taiwan as their place of birth. Wow. So to appease the Chinese... The State Department at that time issued a proclamation and put a notice in the Foreign Affairs Manual saying this does not change our foreign policy or our position on Taiwan. We still recognize China as sovereign over Taiwan. We're just letting these individuals self-identify as they choose. They want to acknowledge or feel that it's noted that they were born in Taiwan. And the Chinese were appeased. And to this day, people can put Taiwan as their place of birth. And when they put Taiwan on the passport, each one of those passports is like a thumb in the eye of the Chinese because you see Taiwan. With the Jerusalem passport case, if people put Israel as the place of birth for those people born in Jerusalem, no one knows whether that individual is born in Tel Aviv, Haifa, Beersheba, Ashdod. Nobody knows because they all just say Israel. And yet, after that law was passed, President Bush issued a signing statement when he signed that bill into law. This is the younger President Bush. And he, um, he said, we're not going to follow this section of the law. It was a smaller section of a much larger law uh, because it impermissibly interferes with my authority to exercise foreign policy. So um, you want to know how, how this case came about. I will tell you that... Mm -hmm. The Congress passed a law, President Bush signed this signing statement, and a few weeks after the law was passed and the signing statement was issued, a really good lifelong friend of mine gave birth to her third child, was her first child in Israel after they'd made Aliyah, and the baby was born in um, Sharit Tzedek in West Jerusalem, part of Jerusalem that's been under Israel's sovereignty since 1948. And so when I called her up to wish her a mazel tov, I told her about this new law, and I suggested that when she went to get the baby's passport, she might want to try and test this law. And so she and her husband did. And when they asked for the passport to say Israel, the clerk at the um, consulate told them, no, it uh, doesn't matter what the law says, the passport's going to come back saying Jerusalem. 
And sure enough, it did. And I joke that that is when Menachem Binyamin Zivatovsky became Lewin and Lewin's youngest pro bono client. <laughs> and the case meandered through the courts, up and down. It went to the Supreme Court twice. It's pretty unusual. It went to the Supreme Court twice. Uh, it took um, over 13 years in the courts, 13, 14 years in the courts. For the first argument, my father argued in the Supreme Court. That was his 28th argument, Supreme Court argument, and I argued um, the second time it reached the court, which was my first Supreme Court argument. And I will tell you that although my father was encouraging me to do the argument and the client was encouraging me to do the argument, I was very, very hesitant to do the argument because <laughs> while my father and I have a law practice together, uh, we have very different um, uh, I should say pieces of the practice that we enjoy. My father loves to get up in court. He loves the adrenaline rush. He loves the arguments, you know, with the whether it's appellate arguments or examining witnesses. I much more enjoy kind of the mediation. I've been trained as a mediator. I like to try and see if I can bring the parties to reach a negotiated settlement. So the joke always in our firm was. You want to negotiate a settlement, go talk to Aliza. You want to litigate the case, go talk to Nathan Lewin. And what that meant in actual uh, practice was that if we had oral arguments, I gave them to my father to do, and I sat second chair. So this wasn't only going to be my first Supreme Court oral argument. This was my first argument in any appellate court. Wow. Starting off strong with the first oral argument, right? <laughs> so to say that this was pushing myself outside my comfort zone yeah. is an understatement. Wow. I really was unsure whether I was ready to step into my father's shoes and try and take on this case. And it had become, I should say, a significant separation of powers question. This was the first time that you had this kind of conflict where Congress had passed a law making clear what its position was, and the president disagreed. And the question was, which governs, right? Did Congress have the right to pass this law governing passports? or? Did the president have this exclusive authority, as he was claiming, to recognize foreign sovereigns? And you should realize that this, the Constitution says nothing about a recognition power, recognizing foreign sovereigns. The closest is that the president receives foreign ambassadors. And the question is, is that really just meant to be ceremonial, or was that power meant to convey some major foreign power? Uh, with it. And uh, so I, anyway, I decided, I waited until the very, very last day to make my decision. Two weeks before the oral argument is when you have to submit the paperwork to the Supreme Court, letting them know who's going to do the argument. And that's when I filled out the paperwork and I decided I'm going to do it. And I submitted the paperwork. And a couple of days later, I got a call from a reporter um, who covers the Supreme Court for the National Law Journal. And he wanted to know is my father okay? 
Right? My father is, you know, he should live until 120. At Meavesumshana, he should be healthy. But he thought, why am I stepping in? Everybody assumed Nathan Lewin was going to argue this case. Why is his daughter two weeks before stepping in? So I had to explain to the reporter, no, my father's thankfully doing very well. He just wants to ship nachas. So I had to explain to him what nachas was. He wanted to feel that pride that comes with being able to sit second chair for your daughter when she argues her first case before the Supreme Court. He thought that was great. He wrote a wonderful article about it. And one of the things that we had done is we had scheduled um, at Georgetown, the law school, they uh, run an offer to do moot courts for attorneys who have Supreme Court arguments. So we had scheduled a moot court, thinking that it was going to be my father who was going to be arguing the case, for just a couple of days. It was a Thursday right before the argument, which was the following week. And the reason was my father, my parents always spend the high holidays in Israel, and the argument was the beginning of November, just after the holidays. And so this was to give my father time to get back. So um, I get a call when the National Law Journal article comes out is the day before this moot court, and I get a call from a person at the, who's organizing the moot court that night, and they say, wait a minute, who are we mooting tomorrow? Is it Nathan Lewin or Aliza Lewin? And I said, you're mooting me. So we show up the following morning, and there's a professor there with his class come to observe, and they say, you know, we were just talking among ourselves and decided that this really is one of the ultimate gifts that money can't buy for a parent to give a child an oral argument before the Supreme Court. <laughs> that's amazing. I, I mean, truly, I can't think of something that's a better passing of the baton. You're giving your daughter the chance to, I mean, actually, I retract that statement. He didn't give you that chance. You studied, you went to law school, you became a really strong lawyer, and then you got that chance for yourself, and he just happened to be lucky enough to watch his daughter do it. So. I think that that respect has to go to you first and foremost. Sure. So with the Zivotovsky case, um, at the end, I argued it. I, uh, I answered 51 questions in 30 minutes. And, um, and at the end of the day, I came away feeling pretty good about that argument. In fact, um, uh, Nina Totenberg, thank you. In fact, Nina Totenberg from NPR came over to me afterwards and she said, you know, when your father argued it, I didn't think there was any chance you would win. Now you argued it, I actually think, I think you might stand a chance. And, yes. um, and people thought that maybe what would happen is the Supreme Court would decide that what you put in a passport is not the same thing as a formal recognition of sovereignty. And we're going to let people, like with Taiwan, identify as they choose. And you can put in a disclaimer People want to know why we ever made a big federal case out of this to begin with, and we'll let mm. you know the law uphold the law and let people choose. And at the end of the day, that's not what happened. At the end of the day, the Supreme Court ruled against me, and I lost, and I was devastated. I thought, how could that be? We should have won. Everybody was on our side, right? We had. Not only do we have all 100 members of the Senate, now you can't even imagine all 100 members of the Senate agreeing on anything, but the Senate Legal Counsel's Office filed an amicus brief in support of our position. We had additional congressmen that supported it. 
We had state's attorney generals. We had law professors. We had the entire Jewish community from right to left, politically and conservative, orthodox, reform, everybody. There were only three amicus briefs filed against us on the other side. One was by the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, which was filing its very, very first brief. The first time in the Supreme Court, they had not filed yet at that point anything, even through the first Supreme Court argument. And we made a point in that argument saying, how important could this be if they haven't even filed an amicus brief in the case? So they filed one the very last go-round. Um, then there was the... Uh, true Torah Jews, who are like Naturi Karta, who opposed the existence of the state of Israel, and there was a disgruntled taxpayer in California. That was it. Wow. So how did we lose? And I remember thinking, well, you know, was it me? Right? Maybe if my father had argued the case, would we have won? Was this, you know, a mistake? And, and I had no idea at that point, right? This was during the Obama administration. Nobody anticipated a president like Donald J. Trump. And President Trump came along and he turned around and he recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and recognized the Golan Heights as being in Israel. What many people don't realize is that when the Supreme Court ruled in the Zivotofsky case, part of that opinion held that the president of the Supreme Court has the exclusive authority to recognize foreign sovereigns. Many people know that lawyers, for pretty much everything that President Trump did, lawyers ran into court to try and file motions for injunctions to block and stop whatever he did from having any impact, whether it had to do with immigration issues, tax issues, health issues, how to run his hotel, hundreds of cases, lawsuits filed. Do you know that there are zero, zero lawsuits that were ever filed challenging President Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel or his recognition of the Golan Heights as being in Israel? And the reason for that is the Zivotofsky case. Because in the case that I argued, the Supreme Court held that the president has the exclusive authority to recognize foreign sovereigns. So President Trump was exercising the authority that the Supreme Court of the United States had held was exclusively his. So you couldn't go into court to challenge it. That's when I realized that sometimes what we think is our greatest loss may really be and can turn into our greatest victory. I, I had no idea. And to just go back for a minute to my perspective on life, which comes from my faith, Mm -hmm. I honestly believe that everything in this world happens for a reason. And we just, with our small perspective, with the short amount of time we're here on this earth, we don't always understand why it happens. We just have to have faith that it's happening for a reason. And gamzulatova, it's all for good, even if we can't see it. And if we're blessed, if we're truly blessed, will live long enough to see that arc, to understand why something that we might have initially perceived as bad is not really bad, but can be used and becomes something that was necessary for good. That's one of the lessons that I really took away from the Zivotofsky case. And I will say, as you say, I continued to work, and after President Trump made these 
declarations and recognized it took some additional time, but finally in October 2020, the passport policy was changed so that today, any American citizen who requests it, an American citizen born in Jerusalem who requests it, the State Department will list Israel as the place of birth on their U.S. passport. That's incredible how, I mean, this case began in 2002 and it ended in 2020. So it's 18 years. That's, I mean, that's longer than it takes to even study to become a lawyer that that took for this case to come to fruition. And I love the point that you made um, that you might think that you're at a loss, but that actually could could lead to a win down the line that you don't see coming. Um, and it's a really incredible story. Um, and it shows how much persistence there is needed to to be a lawyer arguing in front of the Supreme Court. And it's an incredible story. Um, and I find that oftentimes your perspective, like you'd mentioned, is is so inspiring for so many people. And part of how I've had the honor of getting to know you, as a, a short aside, I'm going to re-ask the question so it's easier for the audio to flow. Um, Part of how I've been honored enough to to get to know you over the past over a year now has been through this mentorship role. And you've been instrumental in helping so many college students to find ways to to advocate for protecting our, our, let me rephrase, help so many college students to advocate for ourselves in the wake of a massive rise of anti-Semitism, especially in the past few months with um, recent clashes between Israel and Gaza, as anti-Semitism has increased since then, you've been a huge role in giving students the tools to defend ourselves. Um, and part of how you do that is through civil rights, the Civil Rights Act in Title VI cases, which is really instrumental in helping students. Um, and part of how you frame that is through this argument that Zionism is to Judaism as Shabbat is to Judaism. And I find that that argument is perhaps one of the most successful I've encountered in in having people who aren't Jewish understand our connection to Israel. Um, Could you lay that out for us and explain to us how that works? Sure. I realized when I started speaking with students on a regular basis that one of the real misunderstandings out there is that people think that the Jews' support for or connection to Israel is just a political perspective. It's an attitude or support for a certain maybe policy. That's not it at all, right? What people don't realize is that Jews are not just a religion, right? It's true, we share a common faith, but we also share this deep sense of Jewish peoplehood and a shared history and a shared pride in our, um, in our ancestry and our culture and our heritage, which is completely and totally intertwined with the land of Israel. You cannot separate our history and our people from the land of Israel, right? Over, so I tell people, over half of the 613 commandments in the Pentateuch are actually related to the land of Israel and can only be fulfilled in the land of Israel. For centuries, there's been this idea that the Jews have been scattered around the globe and that 
someday there'll be this ingathering of the exiles, right? We'll all be reunited. We'll all be coming back to Israel. We pray facing Jerusalem at the end of the Passover Seder or Yom Kippur, which is coming up now, the Day of Atonement. What do the Jews say? Mm -hmm. They say next year in Jerusalem. The prayers are filled with references to rebuilding and returning to Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. So when Jews celebrate and express enthusiasm and support for the modern state of Israel, that comes from, that, that's an expression of pride in their Jewish ancestral ethnic heritage. It is not an endorsement of some political policy, right? You can have Jews who are um, proud Zionists who may be very critical of some of the policies of the current government of Israel. So, but but that doesn't that doesn't negate the fact that their Zionism uh, is an expression of their Judaism. And you're right; mm -hmm. that's what I say. I've said to people. It is as much a part and as integral to Jewish identity as observing Shabbat, keeping kosher, wearing a kippah, right? It is, um, that's what it is. It's, it's that expression of Jewish ancestral ethnic pride. And what's happening today is that Jews are being pressured to hide or shed that part of their Jew Jewish identity. They're being told that the price of admission, particularly to progressive circles, is to get rid of that part of their Jewish identity, to disavow Israel, to distance themselves from it. And that is the unlawful harassment and discrimination. I think that's a really smart way of framing that. And I think that that's part of what I admire so much about your work, that you have this incredible perspective as a really accomplished lawyer um, and someone who is an executive in the Jewish nonprofit world and who takes the knowledge and experience that you have and uses it to inspire students and to give us the tools to, to advocate for ourselves. We've talked about this a lot. Um, which really brings us to the purpose of this podcast, which is we want everyone listening to it. I mean, particularly in this case, young Jewish women, but really for everyone listening to this podcast to feel like they have access to mentors in the field who may who might never get the chance to meet you, who might never have the chance to sit down and have a conversation, but can listen to this episode and, and leave with some sort of knowledge you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, which brings us to the question that I like to, to finish up with for every guest, which is, what is one piece of advice that you'd want to give to the people listening to this, the young women listening to this, right now in this moment of, of time where anti-Semitism is rising about how to navigate the world as a young Jewish person and how to use these tools best to our advantage. I think it's really important to remember that the best response to bias and hate is self-confidence and pride. Right? We cannot let others define us. We, we need to um, delve deeper and learn more and feel stronger and prouder uh, about who we are and, and what we are. And 
the answer is not to try and hide what makes us different. It's to embrace it and to celebrate it and to educate the world about why it is so precious and so special. And, you know, that's, that's, I think, what I would say in terms of the anti-Semitism, in terms of just mentoring on a more general level, I would say, and this comes from my Jewish perspective again, I believe that every single one of us is here for a reason. Every person has their unique talents and skills that they're meant to somehow use to contribute to make this world a better place. And so if there's something that you enjoy doing, if there's a topic that you're passionate about, make time for that. Even if it's as a hobby because you're occupied with something else primarily at that moment, whether it's school or a job, whatever it may be. Because if you keep at that long enough, you will find a way, I believe, to work that into, into your life in a way that will give meaning to your life. The late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs said that you find your destiny where your passion intersects with something that the world needs. And if you keep working at your passion, you will find that you're contributing it to the world in a way that the world needs. And just continue to engage, continue to be open to new opportunities. Push yourself outside your comfort zone. As I say, the lesson that I learned from the Zivotovsky case, when I agreed to do that oral argument, at that point there had been fewer than 1,000 women in American history wow. who had ever argued a case before the United States Supreme Court. Wow. And I joined that group. It changed my professional life, being able to say that I did that argument. So push yourself outside your comfort zone because that's where we really grow. And never, never, never give up. Because sometimes, as I said, what we think may be our greatest failure turns into our greatest triumph. Eliza Lewin, you are absolutely incredible. One of the most incredible women I've ever had the privilege of getting to know um, as a mentor and professionally. And I'm very grateful that you took the time to speak with us today and that everyone got a chance to hear your story because it's just unbelievable. So thank you so much for, for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Julia, for inviting me. And I wish you the best of luck with all your endeavors. Thank you so much. One of my favorite parts of hosting this podcast has been the impact that it's had on me on a very personal level. I get to sit down with some of my own mentors, some of the people who have shaped me into who I am today who I look up to as role models. And I hope that you listening have also experienced this impact in some way. Aliza is a really perfect example of this. She's accomplished more than any of us could ever dream of really. And beyond her accomplishments, she's this incredible woman who gives back to the community she comes from. She advocates for the Jewish people. 
she is this incredible example of powerful womanhood. And she does this all while mentoring young people to follow in her footsteps. Truly, I'm so inspired by Aliza Lewin and all women like her. And this, my friends, is where we'll leave you for today's episode of Nice Jewish Girls. Hopefully a bit smarter and a bit more inspired. I would love, love, love to hear your feedback. Email me at podcasts at jewishunpack.com. And don't forget to join us next week when we'll be speaking with independent filmmaker Paula Eisel. Nice Jewish Girls is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Rivki Stern is our producer, and I am your host, Julia Jassy. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related, and subscribe to our other podcasts. Check them out and let me know what you think. And don't forget to follow Unpacked at all of the social media places. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. Talk to you later, ladies.